Will you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 27? Matthew 27, and let's read together uh, verses 1 through 10. This is God's holy and inerrant word. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, He changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was was fulfilled, what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Let's pray together. Father, in the middle of the commotion and the hustle and bustle of everyday life, we come to this moment where together we have prayed and sung. We've read in the presence of your body, your word. And now, Lord, uh, we ask that you would teach us from it. Help us this morning to understand our need for true repentance for those who are not believers, who have not placed their faith in Christ. I pray that you would help them to understand their need. And for those of us who have, help us to understand that repentance is a lifelong process. Please give us understanding, give us clarity of mind. Please convict me first. And then, Lord, do your work in all of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, On October 31st of 1517, um, Martin Luther wrote a letter to the Archbishop of Mainz. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't speak German well, but um, he wrote that letter. And enclosed in the letter was a document that we call the 95 Theses. And often you'll, you'll recall that this is a picture that you would see uh, typically around October 31st of Martin Luther at the Wittenberg church door with a hammer and a nail, and he's, he's pounding a nail into the door and the 95 theses are, are hanging from it. You might recall that Martin Luther wrote this, uh, this treatise because he was really frustrated by the churches, the Catholic churches at the time, uh, indulgences practice where they would go and sell indulgences. You would, you would essentially give them money, and they would give you the ability to 
not serve as much penance or maybe not serve as much time in purgatory as you might originally have had to do. And Martin Luther thought, you know what, I read in Scripture that repentance and the forgiveness that God provides is actually what, uh, what saves. And so he wrote a letter to the Archbishop, the beginning of, of what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. And uh, I won't read the entire document. I encourage you to go back and do that. It's, it's got some really interesting stuff in it. But I want to read for you his very first thesis. Uh, the first thesis says, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when He said, Repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. Now the rest of the document has a lot of stuff in it. There are some problems in it for you know what we believe now. But, but primarily what Luther was trying to show was that a Christian's life should be marked by an attitude of repentance. He, he demonstrates that a believer's response to sin should be defined not by a church and not by other people around him, but instead by God Himself. And so, uh, today we, we found ourselves in the story of Judas's death. And uh, it was interesting when, uh, when Brad offered me the opportunity to preach, he gave me a couple of different passages to, to choose from. I, I thought that this would be an interesting one to tackle, but I didn't really have a sense about where we would go with it. And uh, it's interesting that out of this story, which is very dark and, uh, and very difficult to handle, uh, that we would have hope as a result of it. That we would find hope in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And, and maybe a hope that Judas never found. Uh, so we've spent our time in the book of Matthew. We've traced the story of Jesus. But I think it'll be helpful for us to go back just briefly. We've, we've kind of gone through these, uh, these vignettes before. But we want to trace the story of Judas so we can better understand what's going on in Matthew 27. So, uh, first off, who was Judas Iscariot? Scripture doesn't tell us a lot about him. We know he uh, is a disciple of Christ. We meet him first in Matthew chapter 10 as Jesus appoints him for service. He, he gathers the 12 apostles. He says, here's the 12 apostles and Matthew and some of the other gospels list those apostles out. And we see Judas Iscariot for the first time. And Judas is sent off with the rest of the 12 to spread the news of the kingdom. We know uh, from scripture that he was in charge of the money, which is interesting uh, because Matthew was the money guy, right? He was a tax collector. So Apparently, Judas had some background in money, uh, maybe some experience with finances. And John tells us uh, that he was a thief and would often help himself to the money in the money bag. So, so even before he betrays Jesus, Judas is not a great guy. He's clearly doing his own thing. And Jesus knows this uh, as he knows everything when he chooses Judas Long before the Passover week in John chapter 6, Peter is confessing that Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God, and Jesus says, Did not I choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? And it, he said that knowing that Judas would be the one to betray him. Uh, just briefly, a few snapshots in the story of Judas uh, leading up to his betrayal of Christ. John 12, 1 through 8, uh, we won't read this, but, but make a note of it. John 12, 1 through 8 is six days before the Passover. Uh, and and uh, this is the story of uh, 
Christ's anointing by Mary. And we've read that in Matthew as well. It's in all the Gospels. But just a note here, and and you'll remember this, that perfume was very expensive. Uh, It was worth about 300 days' wages. And so I'm a, a math guy, and so if we use a little bit of the minimum wage here in Ohio, right, that's worth around $22,000 for that vial of perfume that was poured over Jesus. That's a lot of money. Judas uh, is appalled. right? We remember this from John chapter 12. Put yourself in his shoes. If you're counting on donations into this bag of money that you carry to fund whatever lifestyle you're trying to accomplish, uh, imagine what you could do with $22,000 that gets just put in a bag that you are the one that has access to. Uh, Luke 19 through 22 is, is the next kind of vignette that we see. It's the next several days leading up to the Passover. Um, and I want to kind of blaze through this quickly because I want to get to Luke chapter 22. So Luke 19 through 22, there's the triumphal entry. Jesus runs the money changers out of the temple. Uh, he denounces the religious leaders. He foretells uh, the temple's destruction. And uh, you might understand, if you're one of the religious leaders, you're starting to get a little peeved, right? Jesus is, is telling everyone that you are the problem. That, that your whole system of power is corrupt. And Luke uh, chapter 19 and chapter 22 tells us that the, the religious leaders began to look for a way to arrest Jesus and put Him to death. It also says that they are afraid to do it during the day because everyone else, all the crowds that were following, thought Jesus was pretty great. They loved His teachings. It was, it was revolutionary, right? Um, so the religious leaders have a thing in mind They want to put Jesus to death. And so Luke chapter 22, if you'll turn there briefly, verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray them to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. And, and so this verse, these verses record that during that time, Satan enters into Judas, and Judas goes to the religious leaders and he says, hey, listen, it's no secret that you hate Jesus. How much for me to help you find Him when no one's looking? And Matthew 26, we've read this, records that the religious leaders paid him 30 pieces of silver. Um, And if you think back to when we were going through that passage in June, you you probably remember that it's not a lot of money. So depending on what kind of silver it was, it would probably be worth around 375 bucks today. And you might ask yourself, uh, just like I did as I was going through this, why? Right? You've been around Jesus if you're Judas. You know He's kind and loving and, and perfect. And why would you want to hand Him over to the people who want to kill Him? I, th- I think this is a little bit of what like draws our attention to uh, things like true crime podcasts and, and the news at the end of the day, right? We can't imagine ever finding ourselves in that position where we would want to betray Jesus Christ. And so we look with kind of this, this horror at why would Judas ever think to do this? I, I probably don't have to tell you this, but but a lifestyle, an ongoing lifestyle of sin, 
and in Judas's case, a lifestyle potentially of addiction to, to uh, stealing. As a thief, maybe he, he had some other vice that he was funding. That lifestyle will warp our minds to the point of rationalizing evil. And we don't know Judas's heart outside of what we're told in the Gospels. But we find out here in a few minutes, we will find out, that he cares enough about the law of God to feel guilty for betraying an innocent man. But in the moment, he had a great reason. We don't know what it was, but he had a great reason. Maybe he owed someone. But whatever it was, $375 bought his soul and and caused him to betray Christ. Uh, We may have talked about this when Pastor went through this passage. 30 pieces of silver was the amount of money in the Old Testament, that was paid to an owner of a slave when maybe an animal uh, killed the slave, right? And so if your animal killed someone's slave, uh, you would go and you would pay 30 pieces of silver to the owner of that slave. And there's some some extra prophetic imagery in, in Zechariah 11. But it's interesting to see that in this case, Jesus was merely worth the price of a slave to Judas. He was worth $375. But I want to just just back up about five minutes and compare that to Mary. To Mary, $20,000 was not too much to spend on her Savior. I think it says something to the value that we place on Christ. Judas, as we'll see, had been with Christ through the entirety of his earthly ministry. And yet, that's all the amount of money that he thought Christ's life was worth. Just a couple of more scenes from the life of Judas. Um, Matthew 26, 20 uh, and, and following. We won't read it. We've been through that in the past several weeks. It gives us the events of the Passover meal. Jesus is reclining with the twelve and he shares with them the ceremony that we just practiced. During that time, he looks around at his apostles. He's, he's reclining at the table and he says... One of you will betray me. And they're all used to Jesus prophesying and and speaking in parables. And, and, you know, they're like, okay, well, who is it? I mean, I I don't think I'll betray him, but you're you're prophesying something. So is it it me? Is is it I? Am I I the one? And you could tell they, they probably don't imagine that there's already a plan in place to betray Christ. And as they're asking, Jesus says, well, it's someone who's eating with me right now. So they're clamoring, and, and then they later break into an argument about who's the best, and not who's going to betray him, who's actually the best of all of them. And in the middle of that, Judas asks, is it I? And, and I just imagine a moment where Jesus catches his eye and then speaks to the crowd of disciples so that they don't really understand who he's talking to. And he said, you have said so. And John records that in that moment, Satan once again enters Judas And Jesus turns to him and says, what you are going to do, do quickly. And so Judas leaves. Uh, Matthew 26, 24, we've uh, we've been through this, but just briefly, I want to read this passage. The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus references throughout Scripture, and especially in this passage, 
his obedience to the sovereign plan of God. But nowhere does he absolve Judas of his depravity. And it's important to remember as we get closer to the end response of Judas in Matthew 27, uh, John MacArthur writes, the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan in the death of Christ in no way mitigates or absolves the guilt of his murderers. Judas is still guilty of the, of the body and blood of Christ. And all four Gospels then record the moment of betrayal in the garden. There's some slight variations there. Judas leads a group of soldiers up to Jesus and the rest of the apostles who were with them. And just to identify who Jesus is, he greets Jesus with a kiss. Uh, and I'll, I'll quote another theologian that I really appreciated here. John Piper references this moment when Satan enters Judas and when Judas kisses Jesus. And he says, Jesus' death was sealed with a kiss, but so was Satan's. In a twist of irony, when Satan entered Judas, Satan himself committed suicide and sealed his own fate. What an amazing thought that in, the, in this moment, even though Satan was, was close to winning and putting Christ to death, that he sealed his own fate by causing Judas to betray Jesus. He continues, Where is God when Judas is selling his son into death and Satan is rampaging to rub it in and make it as bad as possible? God is ruling in heaven to fulfill dozens of Scriptures in those sins. Sin everywhere in fulfillment of Holy Scripture. There never was a greater conflagration and coming together of sin than here and never a moment where more Scripture was being fulfilled than here. I really appreciate this view because we find a little bit of hope in what Judas is doing even though there was no hope for him. There's hope for us in these moments. And so we come back to the passage at hand, this moment where Judas has followed Jesus and the soldiers to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus is questioned. He's mocked. He's slapped around. He's condemned. And Judas is watching and we've read the passage here, and Judas sees what's going on, and suddenly he feels something. He feels remorse. He, he changes his mind. As I, as I studied this passage, I, I just couldn't help but wonder, what happened in Judas's mind and heart as he sees Jesus being led away? And, and I don't know that we'll ever really understand it, Maybe he didn't expect the, the religious leaders to go as far as they did to put Jesus to death. Maybe he thought they would just slap him around and let him go. But whatever it is, it's almost like Judas wants to repent. But he doesn't quite make it. Uh, the Scripture in this passage uh, uses a Greek word, and I'm going to try and pronounce it for you. Uh, it is metamelamai. And there are two words that we usually translate repentance or regret in Scripture. Metamelamai is the one that is used for Matthew uh, and Judas, used by Matthew for Judas. Metanoeo is a Greek word that means a change of heart or involves the action of turning away. But, but this word that's used for Judas is a change of mind or feeling. We might use the word Regret, and it's the word that Matthew uses to describe Judas's feelings. 
But it's not true repentance. Metanoeo is a word that references a change of heart and involves the action of turning away from something that's been done and turning to something else. And it's found all the way through the New Testament. It's the call of John the Baptist in Matthew 3 as he prepares the way of Christ. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the command of Jesus in Matthew 4.17 as He begins His earthly ministry. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the instruction of the twelve apostles and Judas in Mark 6.12 as they're sent out by Jesus. It says, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. It's the ongoing message of Jesus in His earthly ministry in Luke 13 as Jesus references two recent tragedies that had taken place in society. And He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's the sermon of Peter in Acts 2.38 after Jesus is taken into heaven and the Holy Spirit is given to the church. He says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the exhortation of Christ to the church's true believers in Revelation, specifically to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And maybe you can see a theme start to emerge here that just as Luther summarized in his uh, first of the 95 theses, that our whole lives as believers should be about repentance. So in the last several minutes uh, that we have, I want to talk through three marks of true repentance. Uh, There there are so many more. This is a, a conversation that could go on for hours and days. But these are three that I think we can hold up in comparison to Judas' act of remorse and talk about where Judas went wrong, as far as we can tell, and where we can find hope as believers. First, true repentance is the result of a life-changing encounter with God. True repentance is the result of a life-changing encounter with God. When we know God intimately, when we worship Him truly, And when our gaze is on Him constantly, and and could I say when we experience God, we cannot help but see how unlike Him we are. And we can't help but begin to feel our sin and our inadequacy against Him. And and, uh, think about this happened through Scripture. Adam in the garden, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. At the burning bush, Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. The Israelites at Mount Sinai and Isaiah before the throne of God in Isaiah 6. An encounter with God will always leave us with an understanding of how desperately sinful we are. Compare this with Judas' encounter with Jesus. MacArthur again points out that no man has ever been more exposed to God's perfect truth. No man has been more exposed firsthand to God's love, compassion, power, kindness, forgiveness, and grace. No man has had more evidence of Jesus' divinity or more first-hand knowledge of the way of salvation. Judas lived and worked with Jesus for three whole years. 
Uh, he was taught by him. His feet were washed by him. He heard the message of Christ the entire time. So what is the difference? Somehow, after all of that, after seeing Jesus for who He truly is, somehow He persisted in resisting and rejecting the truth of God. He resisted the grace of God, and most importantly, He resisted God's Son, Jesus. Um, And I was trying to think of a good example for this, but you can drive by Ray Ray's or Hot Chicken Takeover or your favorite restaurant all you want, but if you never stop in and eat that brisket... If you never stop in and eat that fried chicken, you can't begin to comprehend what you're missing out on. Culturally, we're taught that repentance begins with self-reflection, driving by and thinking about how much we want that brisket. But the problem is when we begin inwardly, we tend to see sin and repentance as something outside of us. It's a traumatic and unnatural thing that somehow has happened to us because the foundation of our hope rests in our own goodness. And Judas does this in Matthew 27. He initially, or essentially, diagnoses his problem. And he tries to solve, we'll see in a minute, solve the problem himself. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So there's really no concept here of anything else he's done wrong. He's been a thief the entire time he's been with Jesus. He is not a man broken as he realizes his standing before a holy God, he's a guilt-ridden man who's trying to figure out how to fix a sin he suddenly discovered in his own heart. As repentant believers, our knowledge of what's inside of us must always start with a deeper understanding of the one outside of us. If we begin internally, we tend to make ourselves out to be the victim. And the end result is hopelessness. Either you will always play the victim, or you will always be justifying your own actions. And to truly repent, to truly turn away from our sin, we must begin by looking at Christ. Tim Keller writes, The more aware we are of God's grace and our acceptance in Christ, the more able we are to drop our denials and self-defenses and admit the true dimensions of our sin. And guess what? When that happens, true repentance will be such a welcome relief. Only then will our true hope be placed in the righteousness of Christ. And we won't have to worry about whether we're a failure or not. We cannot fail eternally when Christ has already succeeded perfectly on our behalf. So Christian, look at your beautiful Savior. Read about Him. Know Him. You will find your heart filled with joy and a desire for true repentance and reconciliation with God. Psalm 34 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. And at the end of that song, David writes, The Lord redeems the life of His servants none of those who take refuge in Him will ever be condemned. Secondly, we see that true repentance begins with inward change and grows into outward change. True repentance begins with inward change and grows into outward change. As we begin to see God for who He is and understand ourselves in relation to Him, 
we begin to be changed inwardly. And this is the beginning of true repentance, of, of the word uh, metanoeo, I hope. A change of heart. But it doesn't stop there. True repentance always leads to outward change. In Luke's Gospel, John the Baptist sees the crowds gathering to be baptized, and he rebukes them as if they're just standing there for the show of it all. He says in Luke 3, He said, therefore, John the Baptist, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Later on, this crowd says to him, okay, we want to do that, so what do we do? And he begins to give them the practical outworking of the repentance he's, uh, that they're professing. He specifically says, tax collectors, don't collect more than you should collect. Soldiers, don't extort money from people by threatening them. And Jesus backs this up in Luke 6. He says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. How do we get the new heart? Well, that that new heart comes through Christ. But that new heart, that inward change, is not in and of itself the new way of life. It is the beginning, the inward change, that produces a change of actions. But it's interesting. Judas saw his sin as a momentary act to be pondered and regretted. Not as a lifestyle to be actively turning away from. We see this again when he says, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. The Greek tense that Matthew uses, and in fact, I think the English words are pretty clear about it too, indicates that Judas is only concerned about one very specific action. And just a side note on this, he may be concerned about this because he remembers uh, the curses that Israel shouted from Mount Ebal in Deuteronomy. And one of those is, cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. Uh, Very specifically and uh, very specifically applicable to Judas's action. It's important to note, and, and this goes back to the previous point, if your regret for sin, and then even the change that results outwardly, is just a result of trying to comply with a rule, then you have not experienced true repentance. True repentance and life change is a result of our love for Christ. Loving His commandments is the fruit that comes from loving Christ. So Christian, as your heart is transformed and as your love for Jesus grows, seek to become like Him by following His commandments. But don't just follow the law out of duty. Follow it out of love. First John, everyone who believes, First John 5, that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God, And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. In verse 3, For this is the love of God, 
that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Psalm 119, a whole bunch of verses there. But verse 97 says, Oh, how I love Your law. And it's really in the middle of not not a love letter to the law itself, but a love letter to the lawgiver. David, as he writes Psalm 119 and, and all of its verses and all of the paragraphs that go along with it, it's not just that he thinks the law is this really beautiful book that he likes to read. He loves God. He loves and has experienced the grace of God in his own life. And so as a result, he wants to obey God. It is the practical outworking of his repentance that he wants to change and follow the law of God. And then thirdly, true repentance finds the remedy for sin in Christ. Let's touch quickly on Judas. Judas tries to fix his sin. And he does it by doing a couple of things. First of all, we see in, in Matthew 27, 3, he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. He tries to actually go to Jesus' enemies to somehow absolve him. And they're the religious leaders. That's their job to show people how to, to be forgiven of sin. But he goes to them looking for absolution from his sin. And it doesn't work because that's never what they cared about in the first place. That's never what the religious leaders were about. They had their own power. They had their own stuff to be worried about. And they were never concerned about actually helping people to repent. And so then Judas tries to fix it himself. They said, no, we're not not going to help you. In verse 5, throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. And there's a lot that happens after this, but it's, it's interesting that Judas doesn't go far enough. You'd think that taking your own life is the ultimate, uh, or the ultimate end that you could come to. But Scripture tells us that it's not about destroying our bodies to make us right with God. He destroyed himself outwardly, but he never put the inward sin nature to death in Christ. Judas didn't go far enough in his desire to root out the sin in his own heart. And and that's rampant in our culture today, isn't it? We look everywhere and and we're supposed to feel guilt. We We are told we must be guilty. We must feel how guilty we are. Uh, and, and, okay, do you finally feel guilt? Of course you do. So now, kneel and fix it by going to whoever's making you feel guilty. But they're not going to make you feel better because it's just men and they have their own hearts to worry about. And so, of course, at the end of that, it's up to you to try and make yourself feel better. And so what will you do to fix it? And there's a few things you can do. You can excuse your own sin. But if you feel really bad, you really want to do the right thing, self-retribution is the answer. You can destroy yourself publicly if you want to really do the right thing. You can fix it by going and hiding the rest of your life or whatever you decide to do that will hurt you enough to atone for the sin that you have committed publicly. 
This is self-righteousness. And, and frankly, I find it in my own life. We can make ourselves, I do this, we can make ourselves such a pathetic figure that we feel like, oh, I've, I've done it. I finally deserve forgiveness because I've groveled enough at the feet of God. That, that hurts me real bad. The ultimate act of self-retribution is, is Judas's death at his own hand. But his death did not fix it. And neither will our self-retribution, neither will us groveling and trying to make ourselves as pathetic as possible. It doesn't relieve guilt. And in Judas's case, it just made it permanent. Jesus Christ is the only one who can satisfy the law of God. And repentance acknowledges that we cannot do anything to merit our own forgiveness, not even repenting enough. Repentance lays everything on Christ. Christ has done everything to merit God's forgiveness. 1 John 1.9, we can quote that, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's interesting. That verse reminds us that because of what Christ has done, God would be completely unjust to deny you forgiveness. It would be, it would be against the very nature of God for Him to say, no, you're not doing enough. I'm not going to forgive you. Because Christ has already done everything on your behalf. Again, Keller says, in religion, we try to earn our forgiveness with repentance. And in the Gospel, we simply receive it. Judas didn't realize that. He thought it was all about fixing it. He thought about, it was all about making himself as public a spectacle enough that maybe at the end he would not be, uh, he would not be guilty of this sin Or maybe he thought, I would be guilty, but I just want to be done with it all. We don't know what was in his heart and mind. But in the end, he chose the wrong path. And his repentance was not true repentance. It was a change of emotion. It uh, it started inside of himself, but it never actually changed his heart. He never went to the one person that could forgive him, that could truly give him uh, eternal life. So Christian, when you find sin inside, run to Christ. Give up trying to choose your own consequences. Relinquish control to the one who has already been punished on your behalf. True repentance goes hand in hand with the transformation that we experience as believers. When true repentance through the grace of God touches the very core of our being, we believe by faith in Christ and we're converted. In the ongoing process of lifelong repentance, then as believers, we are continually transformed to be like our Savior. True repentance will find its ultimate fulfillment when we stand face to face with Christ and when we know Him as clearly as He knows us. 
2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes not from you. It comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Be encouraged. This transformation will take place if you are a follower of Christ. Repentance has already been uh, begun in your heart, and you will one day stand before Him perfectly. He promises that to be true through the power of the Spirit. Father, thank You so much for the repentance that You have granted us through Christ, for the change of heart that we experience, for the change of life and action. And thank You, as as hard as it is to, to think about, thank You for the example of Judas who... Uh, through his wicked acts, began the process, initiated the process that you used to redeem us. Uh, What an amazing thought that is, Lord. And uh, we confess that we would have done it some other way and it wouldn't have worked. So thank you for what you have done on our behalf and help us as we then live a life of repentance to acknowledge that that is enough, that your sacrifice has Uh, completed everything necessary for our salvation. We look forward to the day when we will see you face to face, when we will be like you, and when all of the sin and all of the, the junk that's in our hearts will be purged finally. And we will have perfect unity with you for eternity. Lord, may that day come soon. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.